Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. Thank you to this week's podcast sponsor, Mirix Looms. Over 22 years ago, Claudia Chase was a weaver and mother looking for a professional quality tapestry loom, portable enough to take to her kids' soccer games and gymnastic meets. She wanted a small loom that could do everything a big loom could. Before she knew it, she had created the very first Murex loom, and she realized she wasn't the only weaver who wanted one. Now, over two decades later, Claudia and her daughter Alina sell their U.S.-made, portable, metal, versatile looms and loom accessories to customers all over the world. Murex looms are able to take your weaving from simple to complex with must-have basics like a fantastic shedding mechanism, adjustable tension, and fold-out legs and optional accessories like an automatic treadle and a sitting-standing loom stand. Murex looms are built to last for a lifetime and are perfect for all-level tapestry or weft-faced weavers from beginning to professional. Are you ready to upgrade to a Murex? Listen for the link at the end of this podcast for a special surprise for Weave podcast listeners and visit murexlooms.com to learn more about their looms and get a free personalized loom recommendation. That's M-I-R-R-I-X-L-O-O-M-S.com. Thank you, Murex, for sponsoring the podcast. Hello. Welcome to this week's installment of Contextualizing Textiles, a series that focuses on interviewing textile farmers and agriculturally based weavers, artists, and designers. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Sajada Epps, a founding member of the Kelly Street Collective in the Bronx in New York City. Sajada is an artist and weaver who creates textile products for her lifestyle brand using recycled tools and natural materials from her Urban Gardening Collective. Hello, Sajada, and welcome to the Just Sharn Podcast. Hello, how are you? Great. Can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you found your way towards textiles? Uh, well, my name is Sajada Epps. My work name is Sajada E. And I started in textiles 2008 or nine. But uh, in the beginning, I was just a clothing designer. So I went to college for um, clothing and design and became a little disenchanted, I guess you could say, by the industry and how uh, wasteful it was. Uh, I was working, doing shows like 7th on 6th on 5th Avenue. And it really was just, uh, it was exciting in the beginning, but I just saw a lot of waste. And I and it really just, it made me upset. So I wanted to go another route. And so I decided to figure out, okay, so there has to be other avenues and other ways of doing what I want to do without being in the mainstream industry. So that's when I started looking up uh, weavers and other designers who were at the time alternative. That's what we, everybody called it. And I, you know, started seeing how we did it way before the industrialization came to be. <laughs> before we started getting these giant machines and these giant manufacturers. Uh, before that happened, it was very simple. You know, we had tribes and we had communities that wove and died and they made what they needed. 
as opposed to just making a bunch of stuff. And that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to make what is necessary for the public, not make a mass quantity for the public. Mm. And was this all in New York City? Yes. So this was all in New York City. Um, And it was funny because in New York, I think, um, especially now recently, there's a massive disconnect between designers and the industry themselves. You know, most, there are a lot of designers, surprisingly, don't even know how to make a pattern. Mm. So like they call themselves designers, but they're on a computer, they make a flat sketch, they make a mock, and then they send it out to manufacturers to get it made in mass quantities. So there's a huge disconnect between what is being created um, on a computer screen and what's actually being made in these factories that create a lot of waste. And we also have become a society of fast fashion where we want so many selections. We want a whole bunch of stuff that we're not going to buy, of course. We just want to see it. You know, mm-hmm, <laughs> we just, mm-hmm. we just want to look at it. Uh, so designers make for our consumer needs, uh, which is the need to have a bunch of stuff, supposedly. And then they get it sent out. And they're not connected to how much they're creating. They just know how many units they have to make in order to satisfy the public. They do this. They get it stocked in stores. And then, you know, we're all buying it. But there's a huge disconnect between the actual creation and the actual, you know, what it takes to actually make that whole product and how far it travels and how much waste is being consumed while making that product. So... In New York, I really wanted to stay in New York in order to really find that disconnect and bring it back to just grassroots designing, just being able to create simply, to create in in a more um, responsible manner, and also to, you know, give workshops and um, teach other people that, you know, we don't need as much stuff as we think we need. You know, we... We have enough. We don't need this much. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. A lot of the people who've come on the podcast sort of started off as fashion designers and eventually learned about the waste that was created and found themselves in not only working as an alternative designer, but also in working in agriculture and sort of really literally going back to the grass and grassroots. Um, can you... Can you talk about how you went from being in such a industrial area that is New York City and found yourself towards creating gardens that could support both edible um, food production as well as textile dyes and, and things like that? Well, one of the, I, I think the biggest the the turning point for me is when I went to Franklin Franklin Avenue Franklin Street Franklin Street and I was going to buy some dye I wanted to go buy some dye I remember and I was spinning wool and I said okay let me let me get some dye at Franklin Street and the person I was buying dye from she was very nasally she couldn't really speak very well and I asked her excuse me may I ask are you feeling okay? Are you well? And she said, 
well, I can't breathe out of my left nostril. And I said, oh, because you're not feeling well. She said, no, no, no. I stopped breathing out of my left nostril about 15 years ago. And I was like, wow. And I said, what? (laughs) That she's in a room full of guys. And I'm like, what? She was like, "Um, I, I can't breathe out of my left nostril because I've been in this industry for so long. And I've been, you know, creating, I mean, selling these dyes. I've, I've breathed in a lot of the, the dye particles. Um, so now my left nostril is completely destroyed. And that's when I was like, whoa, (laughs) I think I love what I do for a living. I'm just not willing to die to do what I do for a living. That's not what I want to do. So that's when I started thinking to myself, okay, how can I go about this in a different fashion, in a more um, eco-friendly way? And I started looking up different um, dyes and um, different alternatives to the dyes that um, a lot of people were using. But I really wanted to go deeper than that. So I started researching and looking to see the alternatives. And at the time, I was growing food in my apartment. You know, I have this amazing place um, with these giant windows and I was growing food there. My cat was destroying the beds because she thought it was hers, <laughs> but, but I was still growing food there. And then, um, the South Bronx got a boom of green gardens that were coming up. I mean, they were just popping up one after another. Every now, every three blocks is probably a community garden where I am in the Hunts Point section of the Bronx. And I said, well, you know what? This is probably a good old I'll get a plot and I'll grow there and I'll see where it takes me. And then at the time, um, the garden manager across the way from me, she said, hey, why don't you join us? I think it'll be a great group. Uh, and we started developing this new idea, you know, this, this garden. And I didn't know that it would turn into like so many different projects that spun into my company. Um, I didn't know that at the time, but when I first started there, within a couple of months, we were just in the we were just in the field and we were farming. And she stated to me, she was like, "Hey, you know, have you ever thought about playing with some of the plants here and creating dyes from them? Why don't you use sunflowers?" And I said, "Ah, oh, I read about sunflowers. They don't do you know they don't have a big enough color um, change to it." And she was like, "Oh, yeah, maybe you should try experiment." So I told her, I said, "Okay, so why don't I take a few?" And then I'll show you the different carolers I can pull from it and show you what I do with it. So she goes, okay, great. So it was just just a lively conversation. I did it. I pulled a few and I, you know, did a a bunch of color changes. I did uh, at the time, I did sunflower, did marigold, I did lamb's quarter. Those were three. And I wanted to show her the different color changes. And I did. And everybody loved it. They were like, what? You did this with a flower? This is. (laughs) happening (laughs) and I was shocked by this I was like yeah because I didn't care much about it at the time I was like yeah it's easy to do because I knew why we don't do it as an industry you know I know the consumer Mm -hmm. habits of why we don't do it as an industry unfortunately our industry dictates we create things that last longer than the average human being this is true so Mm -hmm creating something that's only going to last for 10 years, 
20 years. And I mean, last as a means of using it over and over again and last for 10 years. If you use it and then put it away, it'll last longer. Um, but something that lasts longer than us is what is our industry standard now. So when everybody was shocked by this, I said to myself, well, you know what, maybe I should do a couple of workshops and show people, hey, you know, this is possible. We have done this for hundreds and hundreds of years before the Industrial Revolution. This is not a, this is, you know, this should be normal to us. The, you know, the whole concept of using natural dyes should be normal. Um, mm. And so that's why I started the Natural Knitting Project in order to normalize what should be normal in our industry, but isn't because of our consumer habits. Can you speak specifically to how you became a founding member of the Kelly Street Project and went on to become or went on to create the Natural Knitting Project? Yeah. So uh, Kelly Street Garden was the brainchild of two corporations, a nonprofit and a for-profit corporation. Um, and uh, at the time it was, been, it's Banana Kelly and it's also Workforce Housing Group. Um, it's in a backyard space that can't be used for anything else. So it's on private land. Um, and as a backyard space, all the buildings that were Okay, so give to, to give a little bit of um, context to the conversation, uh, Kelly Street had a block of buildings when I first moved into the area where it was just falling apart. There were like, the, the buildings were a mess and they were on the worst um, housing building list for development. And so what, this um these two corporate groups did was they said okay we're going to take the buildings and we're going to move everybody out and we're going to rebuild them which was a great thing because we had rats we had numerous problems because of these buildings so the two corporations they got together and they built out this space what was missing was this land this giant land space between the four buildings and it can't be developed for anything else. And during the seventies, it used to be a garden. It used to be a garden that was maintained by community members, but because of funding, it fell apart and nobody was able to keep it up. So they thought to themselves, okay, so why don't we take this space and give it back to the community and let them develop it again underneath our you know, mentorship and leadership. So at the time I thought to myself, this is a good idea. This is great. You know, let's let's see, you know, um, if this will work. Uh, it is gated off, which is a big obstacle. And it's also not um, accessible via a wheelchair. So you can't really get to it if you are disabled, which was, you know, for me, I said, I don't know how are we going to, we're excluding a lot of people in having this, you know, in the back of the space. But if it wasn't developed into a garden, chances are people would toss trash outside, different, you know, they, because it's it's just a flat space with nothing in the back. So that's why I thought to myself, I said, you know what, this is probably a good idea because if anything, even if it doesn't become a successful garden, it'll definitely be a beautiful space for the community members who live in those buildings 
to look out at. Because I don't know about you, but if you've lived in New York and you live in the back of buildings, it really sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It sucks. I mean, you know, it's so interesting, you know, hearing you talk about this because really my first introduction to agriculture was through living in New York City, which is, you know, funny because, you know, New York City is known as the concrete jungle and, you know, it's not the place that you would imagine would have like these beautiful farms and these beautiful gardens. But I've seen how these community gardens really do help bring people together and they do provide food, especially in places where they don't have um, great grocery stores or access to really fresh produce. Can you kind of talk about the history of the Bronx? Is this the South Bronx? Yes. So um, we're located in the Hunts Point, um, Longwood section Mm -hmm. of the Bronx. Um, And the Bronx is a very interesting story, especially this sector where I am, where, uh, and it's, it's, I have to talk about the history, but I have to also talk about like what's happening now, why agriculture is so important. But why this is the first time I've ever thought to myself, whoa, we might be in trouble. This is like, (laughs) and you know Mm. what? I'm a little bit at fault at this. And here's why. Here's why. Okay. So the South Bronx, um, especially the um, Hunts Point Longwood sector, a couple, like a hundred years ago, it actually was a very affluent area. It was, we have the waterfront section of Hunts Point, um, the East River, the Bronx River. And uh, at the time during like the early 1900s, um, it was a very affluent area. People would go on vacation and be living here. There's actually a mansion a few blocks away from me that's still standing. There are buildings built up around this mansion, (laughs) but it's still standing there. It's the last mansion actually of the South Bronx. Mm -hmm. And you know, this, it was a very affluent area and we had um, a lot of, you know, very interesting aristocrats that would live here. And then there became a decline once like the working Jews and the Irish came here. So they started moving in these buildings, which were tenement flats. And they would live here because they were so close to Manhattan. And most of the Irish who lived here, uh, they worked actually in the garment district in the industry because they would go and they would work there um, making garments, making clothing, and then they would come and live here and you know, live very cheaply. Uh, so that went on for quite some time. Then as the economics changed, so did the community. So a lot of the Jewish um, community kept the ownership of the buildings, but they moved out. Mm. And then the Irish, as they started picking up steam and financing, they moved out as well. And when our, you know, industry started changing and a lot of the factories left New York, the Irish didn't need to live here anymore. So they began to shift out. And then we got a boom of African-Americans who came from the South and a lot of Latin Americans who came from Puerto Rico and um, many different areas. So I actually am a product of that being a first generation um, American 
my mom moved to the Bronx from guess what? Virginia. <laughs> and, my, <laughs> and my dad came from he was an islander. Like most of the people who come from the Bronx who are islanders, he was from Montserrat. So he is a Caribbean Irishman. So, you know, I'm a first generation. And I was born in the Bronx. So my culture is very eclectic. And it's so recent, like in my travels, I've had to try to explain my culture because uh, when you're talking to a first generation American child in the Bronx, your culture is very eclectic. It's made up of a lot of different things. You would just think to yourself, oh, she's brown. Her culture is African-American. She celebrates things that are African, blah, blah. That's not true. You know, your culture, your color might be one thing. Your culture is another. Uh, we have a large group of Latin Americans here. We have a large group of Islanders, Caribbean. Um, so all of that is built into what you eat, uh, how you socialize, how you go to school, what you learn in school. And so my culture was very diverse in, you know, um, a lot of things that generally just were not from the United States of America. So that was kind of an interesting thing to kind of always try to explain to people a lot, especially when your dad is from one place and your mom is from another. Um, but in the Bronx, you know, we have a lot of that um, eclectic mix of, you know, culture and diversity. But now, Fast forward, going into um, 2019, going into 2020, you know, soon, the Bronx now is on a uprising where, you know, we're listed as the top place to visit. We have tourism coming in. Um, the artists who thought they were going to, they were staying to help build up the Bronx actually made it cool to be here which rose the rent <laughs> so, yeah gentrification rose, yes it rose the rent prices and it also created um a whole bunch of corporations who now want to invest here but not really invest here for the people who are trying to keep it here so we and you know we're always trying to keep it so that it's livable we want we want the space to be livable and we want we want everybody to have the same things as you would have in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens. But we also don't want to be chased out, you know, financially mm. because everything's, you know, everything's too high. So there's always this massive battle. And now, you know, because of the fact that we have a long history, I mean, just on my block, um, uh, who lived here? Uh, Colin Powell. Yes. So in the mm. 1950s, Colin Powell lived here. Uh, actually, he lived three buildings down from me. Um, so he grew up here. Many affluent people like, they grew up here and then made it out to be like these big name people. So now loads of people want to come here to get that same recognition, which is now forcing a lot of people who have been here for like 50 years, 60 years out of the community because the new is saying, hey, we're new, we're shiny. Hey. Can you go now? <laughs> and that's becoming an issue for it. That's becoming a big issue. And there's a lot of internal fighting in that. But I will say, this is the first time I've ever been like truly proud of the Bronx artists that are here. Because 
now we're starting to organize. Now we're starting to realize, you know, the projects that we take on might be hurting instead of helping. Um, the things that we do, uh, we have to be a little bit more conscious of what we're doing, how we're doing it, and also educating people about how important it is for Native Bronx residents to live and be in the Bronx and be able to afford to be in the Bronx. Because if you can't afford it, then what do you do? You have to leave your area and displace someone else, you know? Mm. And that becomes a problem. I think when we talk about like gentrification, when we talk about displacement, we don't talk about the fact that you can run out a group and that's fine, that's great because you win for now until somebody runs you out, right? Mm-hmm. But that same group runs out someone else and someone else, it becomes a massive chain of people who are displacing other people for no good reason, simply for because they're looking for better opportunity or they're looking you know, for survival. But a lot of the gentrification that's going on is not about that. It's about survival, some of it, I think 20%, but a lot of it is just how we perceive our lives and what we believe we deserve as you know Americans. And we need bigger this, a bunch of that, a whole lot of this. We don't need all that. <laughs> we don't. We don't. And so that's what the Bronx is currently going through right now. And I'm very happy with the fact that a lot of people are standing and saying, you know what? We're stopping it here. You know, <laughs> we're, we're stopping it here. We want to develop our farms. We want to design. We want to build. But we're doing it for the people who live here. And we're also educating people who don't live here about the importance of doing the same thing in their own communities. Go, don't try to move, try to improve where you are, you know, so that you're not displacing every single person on the chain. Yeah, that's, took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) You know, I mean, I I lived in New York for uh, almost eight years and, You know, I'm not from New York, but as a person of color, I definitely could see a difference in my experience than, you know, some of my other classmates who weren't people of color. And um, just like living in neighborhoods, I lived mostly in Brooklyn and I saw gentrification happening there. And it was was kind of heart wrenching because, you know, when I first moved to Brooklyn, I was excited because I lived in Bed-Stuy and... You know, it had this history, this this really strong history um, as it pertains to African-American culture. And, you know, it was like living in a place that mirrored my childhood. It was like I hadn't totally moved. It was like, you know, the community welcomed me and seeing all of, you know, there's a lot of you know, pop-up shops and little artisanal restaurants and um, gardens and things. And seeing those things happen was exciting. But, you know, I totally understand that there's this piece of you that sees the shift happening and, you know, it kind of puts you in a in a, in a space where you're trying to figure out how do you navigate, you know, how, how do you participate in, in this and, and also be conscious of like the amount of space you're taking up and, you know, how you are affecting your community and what impact you're having yeah i mean i think when you hit it right on the head when you said being conscious of how much space you're actually taking up what was some of the responses that you got when you were starting the garden and you introduced this textile component 
What were some of the reactions of the people in the community who worked in the garden as well as the people who joined your workshops? Initially, the um, the response was great and overwhelming. And actually, it still is. Um, but in the beginning, everybody was first shocked. That was the first you know, response was, wait a minute, you're going to boil a plant, <laughs> extract the color, dye a wall. What? what? What's happening? I mean, like I said, we're in the South Bronx. So people were initially just shocked by this. They were like, how is she going to do this? And still to this day, I hold workshops and, you know, only thing they see are a bunch of plants on a table, a pot and some salt. And they're like, okay, she's pulling my leg. <laughs> She's pulling my leg. She's just making stuff up. We're going to sit here and she's going to make a soup and that's going to be it. <laughs> so that's going to happen. Um, but so that was the initial response. And then when we started making color charts and the kids started doing it, it was amazing. And, you know, that was the, the shock value was very great. But then... And maybe you can attest to this. I don't know because you've been here and you've been a part of the landscape of agriculture. Um, the the garden industry, the agriculture of the Bronx and the gardens, when it picked up steam, in the beginning, I didn't think it would. I just thought it was just kind of a cool thing. People were doing a little bit, but it became like this endeavor of how do I explain this in a very nice way? I mean, people were just, they were just like, I need land, give me land. And they, it became like a frenzy of, you know, I, I just, I just need to, I need land. I need to farm. I need to do this. And it became a, a very trendy thing to do, which sucks. I think anything good when it becomes a trend is bad. Like, <laughs> I, I think, you know, do it because it needs to be done. When it becomes a trend and people are doing things because it's trendy and because they're going to get a status out of it, that becomes a really terrible, terrible thing. So that I feel like that has been a thing in many places of New York City. But when it hit the Bronx, it hit hard. Uh, and it went from, you know, just a group of people who just wanted to, you know, pay homage to a land and care about a land to it being about a money-making endeavor and who can start what company and we can, you know, get these big industries in here. And, you know, I started, you know, we had Saks Fifth Avenue coming to the space and uh, a whole bunch of, you know, different, you know, corporations who just wanted to get their pictures taken with, like local Bronx sites, you know, so that they can, you know, get, you know, then we had the Wall Street Journal here and we had all this press and it really just, it shook us to our core. And it, it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's happening? What's going on here? Um, so it really did, you know, it put the situation where it became not a community thing or not a local business thing it became a cutthroat thing that I didn't realize was going to happen. And when people started talking to me about this, like they were like, okay, so you started this program and you're doing this and okay, so who owns it? And you know, what's the rights to it? And I'm just like, oh, what are you talking about, man? Nobody needs to own it. It's not a like, okay, it's Jada. <laughs> 
Sajada, okay, put your business hat on. This is not going to end well for you. And I didn't, I didn't heed the advice. And so over time, you know, people started coming to me, the corporations that owned the land, because like I said, we're on private land. Corporations started coming to, our, coming to me. I had orgs coming to me, and, you know, if you just give us the, the, you know, the initial paperwork for it, we'll get money for it. And, you know, we'll, we might give it to you. And then I read what they're going to send out and they have their name all over it and they created it and it became a big thing. So I had to kind of step back for a second and say, okay, what do I do now? Because now something that was fun for the kids and for the adults became like this big business thing. I'm a designer and I'm used to doing business when it comes to selling products and stuff like that. But it, when it came to creating a educational tool for a community that just happens to benefit people and educating them on how much their crops are worth to them and how to you know, bring up a community who, by the way, is underneath the poverty line, I was not prepared for that. Yeah, I mean, there's just, you know, sort of responding to some of the things that you said, there's definitely a lot of what I call greenwashing happening, where these large companies, they see people who are working in these really small ways and they kind of want to attach themselves to the idea of it, but don't necessarily put in the effort to be fully invested consciously, socially, as well as financially. Oh, oh yes. They're not interested at all. They're interested about the article that's going to come out. <laughs> they're, they're interested about the press. They're interested about the funding that they're going to get surrounding it. They're not interested in the people. I mean, during the course of being part of just the Kelly Street Project, um, I cut off a piece of my finger, had to get it sewn back on. I got hit by a car while running errands for the groups. Um, I literally just put myself physically and men mentally through so much. And at the end of the day, it was like, okay, so you're going to be here at 11 o'clock, right? <laughs> like, I, I have like bandages from here to Tuesday. <laughs> and and you know, no one cared. And you know what? It's not their job to care. It's their job to get paid at the end of the day. The top, you know, the top executives that invest in these spaces and these lands and stuff like that, like they're getting $100,000 a year, $200,000 a year. They do not care about this little person who is trying to make an impact that's bigger than themselves. They're not interested. They're not, you know. And what's really terrifying to them is when little people are trying to make big impacts and are succeeding at it because in all honesty people that invest in communities like mine they're looking for you not to make an impact because then they can buy cheaply and they can build up from that and so we say you know I don't knock people who invest in the South Bronx or Hunts Point, but there is a reason why they're doing it. And it's not because they love brown people. <laughs> they don't, and I don't mean to sound like a cynic when I say this, 
but it's very true. Like they are looking for the economic incentive incentives that they're getting from it. Um, they're looking to buy cheaply if they can. Um, and then after that, they're looking to make a flip. And usually if they can't make a flip, then they sell off the property. So if it's not going to get them as much money as they planned in the next five or six years, they sell off the property. And so you have to deal with another person who owns the property and then another person and it becomes this endless, vicious cycle. Um, but a lot of people who are buying in are not doing it because it's just the right thing to do because they just like doing it. So you have to deal with a lot of that. And so when little community members, when little people are making big noise and big change in different areas of that that they're working in, it becomes very scary to them because they're now like, okay, so if they could figure out how to do all this without me, then where will I be? And then that's when the problem comes in. So given sort of like this, the landscape of the Bronx and the changes that the neighborhood is going through and, and sort of like the push and pull of uh, all of these different corporate interests as well as or versus community members what does it mean for you in creating this project to be handmade in the Bronx for me I mean I think that um maybe if I didn't have the struggle if I didn't have this this looming <laughs> looming of yeah, you know, can you afford the the rent space and can you afford all this? If I didn't have that, maybe um my life would be a little bit too easy. Um and I wouldn't take it as seriously as I should. Can you kind of talk about how you started the natural knitting project and how you've been able to facilitate the conversation around consumer consumerism? It started with a conversation with me and my um, my garden coordinator. So that's how we started, and then we it progressed into you know workshops where we taught residents how to. Um, create natural dyes from plants and extract those dyes and also figure out the economic value of those plants if they decided to go into business for themselves and grow natural dye plants for themselves and sell it on the open market. So that's pretty much what the natural knitting project is. And then the community has a celebration by having an open studio where they're able to show what they've designed within the 14 week course of the natural knitting project. Um, so that's where it stood for the last two years. Now going into this third year and it's second book that's gonna be coming out in February. Now the natural knitting project has grown and it's a little bigger, like I said, <laughs> and we had to kind of think about how to do this a bit differently. So it's taken on new partners. So a design group um, made NYC has decided that they wanted to take on the Natural Knitting Project, which is great. And I'm very happy that a lot of people are signing on for it. So now it's an educational tool for organizations. Um, a lot of organizations where people with disabilities have taken on the project. So in 2019, it's gonna be in an educational toolkit. 
So anyone who wants to implement the Natural Knitting Project and be able to um, learn how to dye natural, how to dye wool and cottons um, and how to use mordants and how to grow their crops um, in a healthy manner and how to dehydrate their crops so that they could use them in the next year and how to use them for various different art projects. That's all gonna be in a toolkit. Uh, the Natural Knitting Project is also getting a bigger home. So instead of being this small area in Kelly Street Garden, it's going to be in a bigger plot space. It's being assigned and a bigger plot space in the garden. So really happy about that because it started outgrowing its space more than I anticipated. <laughs> it went from being just three plants um, to being a group of, I believe we grow, uh, we have 16 different color variations in a natural knitting project. Oh, wow. What are some of the colors? So we have mulberry, we have fennel, we have um, lamb's quarter, we have marigolds, we have yarrow. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, we have marajam. So those colors make yellows, they make browns, they make greens. So we've been able to create, yeah, about 16 colors so far. So we're really happy with that. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have any new projects or specific things that you'd want to talk about? Um, uh, well, the natural knitting project, I said, uh, you can, um, go to natural knitting project at wordpress.com in order to see the updates on that. So that website is going to be updated this, um, week where you'll be able to see where you can sign up for the subscriptions and various things that are changing with the natural knitting project. So that's great. Um, also, uh, there is a new book project that I am coming out with that has very little to do with the Natural Learning Project and more along the lines of being able to teach people how to um, design textiles in a more eco-friendly way. Uh, so that's going to be coming out at the end of next year. So I'm really excited about that. It doesn't have a name yet, but I'm really excited about that. I'm in my third chapter. So I'm designing pieces for that fairly soon. Um, I'm still going to be working with my local um, Bronx Council. Uh, so please check out my website, sujataee.com. Um, or sujataee4d2bd.com and find out more about all the workshops that will be coming out in 2019. Uh, really, last year, no, sorry, this year, uh, I did a really great project um, called Represent Me Kindly. And that was a doll project where um, I taught um, senior residents how to make dolls that represent themselves in community because the doll companies don't represent us properly. <laughs> they just, and so um, I was really excited about how that turned out. And so I will be investing a lot more time in our senior community um, in 2019. I am still, if you're in the New York City area and you want to participate in one of our senior programs, 
definitely signed up for our Manhattan Project. I know it's not in the Bronx, but we do have a Manhattan Project as well um, at Lincoln Square Neighborhood Center. So before we go, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Oh, I guess so. Um, my advice, if you're starting out, if you're starting out, definitely do the research um, and think outside the box when you're doing the research. Just don't go, okay, I want to improve my skill. I want to be the best weaver I can be um, or textile artist, visual artist that I can be. Definitely look at what you're interested in and then go beyond that. You know, look at the surrounding area of what you're interested in and how you're going to go about it. And don't worry about the cost. I think a lot of textile visual artists, they worry about how much investment it's going to take to get into the industry. Little not, a lot of people who have followed me over the years know this, but um, when I started out, I had no money and I started out with a Craigslist campaign. So I did not have a nickel to my name. <laughs> I really, really didn't. And I said, okay, how do I want to do this? So I wrote a campaign on Craigslist. I wrote what I would need to get started. And I told New Yorkers, hey, you know, if you have your unwanted crochet hooks, yarns, needles, anything like that, donate it to me. And this is what I'm going to use it for. I collected $3,000 worth of product in that one Craigslist. Yes, in that one Craigslist campaign. And that helped me because I was able to turn that that, um, in-kind donation into money to fund the company. So, you know, just don't think to yourself, I need this big investment. I need this big grant, you know, in order to start being an artist. And, you know, I don't have the money. Think a little bit more creatively and GoFundMe's, you know, look, some of them work, some of them don't. <laughs> they, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hit and miss kind of thing, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I just did a, a simple Craigslist campaign, told people what I needed. And then I went literally for the, last, for the next two weeks after that came out all over New York collecting all these different items. I got sewing machines and all various things in order to start my company. So definitely get a little bit more creative about being able to start your creative endeavor as opposed to just thinking to yourself, I, I need this investor. Uh, I need this, you know, this big grantee, I mean, grantor to give me money so I can start. So I would definitely do that and do the research Oh, gosh. And definitely learn like the legalities of what you're doing, the name, all that stuff. And, you know, how you want to trademark yourself. So that's very important, too. Um, I think a lot of artists, they forget that you have to pay the tax guy. (laughs) And they forget for a second. And then they're like, wait a minute, I have to pay taxes on this and that. Yes, you do. You know, definitely. Take some money aside from what you're making. In the beginning, you won't be making anything. And put it aside because you're going to need to pay your taxes and pay your bills. So do that part. But definitely get a little bit more creative about how you want to finance what you're doing. And 
Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. So such uh, such really good practical advice. <laughs> it's definitely needed. I certainly needed to hear it. <laughs> yeah, it's not a big deal, you know, just be a little more creative about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining the podcast and being so transparent about your experience and sharing with us, you know, a voice that often we don't hear especially in the textile conversation, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to um, impact people with um, urban gardening, especially when it comes to textiles and the amount of waste that cities create. So I'm so grateful and thankful for your work and, and thank you again for sharing with us. Oh, problem. thanks for inviting me. Thanks again to Mirix Looms for sponsoring this podcast. Claudia and Alina were one of the first guests that I had on the podcast back when I was just starting it out. And if you haven't listened to their episode already, you really should. It's great to hear the story of how they got their business started. And you can visit mirixlooms.com slash weave podcast to find links to join their online communities on Facebook and Instagram and to download a free mini scribble tapestry wall hanging project ebook just for weave podcast listeners. Mirix looms because the loom you weave on should be a work of art. Upgrade today. That's a wrap. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. I really enjoyed talking to Sajada and learning about the ins and outs of urban gardening, as well as considering what it means to be impactful as a farmer, whether it be in an urban setting or in a rural setting. If you'd like to get in contact with Sajada, links to Sajada's website can be reached by visiting our show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode 43. That's www.gistyarn.com slash episode 43. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Andrea Carpenter the weaver behind Winter Phoenix. Tune in next Monday to hear that episode. And until next time, happy weaving!